I've come to Wolston Manor in Buckinghamshire on the trail of objects related to Marie-Antoinette. She's not the first person you would think of when you get to Wadston, which is set in beautiful countryside, and looks rather like a pastiche of different bits of French chateau stuck together. I'm with Pippa Shirley, Head of Collections and Gardens, and I'm hoping she's going to be able to tell me a bit about the place. Well, if you're in search of Marie Antoinette, you couldn't have come to a better place, really, because this is a Rothschild house. It was built by Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild at the end of the 19th century as a place where he could bring friends and family to entertain them on luxurious weekends out of London. But it's also the home for his spectacular and extraordinary collection, which is very much focused on the 18th century. And objects that were associated with Marie Antoinette were one of the things which really set his heart aflame. When you arrive, you could be forgiven for thinking that you are in the French countryside, because what we're looking at here is, to all intents and purposes, a French Renaissance chateau but it's a jigsaw French Renaissance chateau because Ferdinand's French architect, Detailleur, created Wadston out of all sorts of fragments of other buildings. You can see little elements from the Louvre, little elements from Versailles. The staircases are copied from the Chateau of Blois in the Touraine. Inside the house, though, you are then transported into a completely different world because then you move very swiftly and firmly into the 18th century with rooms that are in many cases taken from 18th century Parisian townhouses. The house is now owned by the National Trust but managed by the Rothschild Foundation and we're open to the public. We have nearly 400,000 visitors a year and in fact we've just had a visit from a coachload of Chinese visitors who've come to learn about the Rothschild cellars. I'm in the white drawing room. Pippa, we have in front of us the most extraordinary picture. This is a state portrait of King Louis XVI of France, looking slightly haughty. He's standing in his ermine robes. He's got his silk bloomers on. He's got his shoes with the red heels, which only members of the royal family were allowed to wear. He's in a very magnificent interior with great swathes of silk velvet all around him and a throne in the background. On the left, there's a main justice, something like the Boy Scouts honour sign on a stave. What did it mean, Pippa? It denoted the king's ability to dispense justice to his people, so very important element of government. He is wearing the most magnificent collar from which is suspended the Ordre de Saint-Esprit, which is one of the orders of the French royal house. The portrait was painted by the court artist, Kelly, who was commissioned to paint this series of portraits of the king, which was the official image of the monarch. This particular portrait was painted in 1783 and it was commissioned for the French ambassador, the Comte Adamar, to bring with him to London as he started his embassy. And I think the thing to understand about these portraits is that they were not really portraits of a person. This was the state image, rather as you find portraits of the Queen and Prince Philip in every embassy around the world now, this painting performed exactly that function. So much so that it actually embodied the presence of the King, so they were always displayed in very grand reception rooms in these embassy buildings, and you would not turn your back on the portrait. It would be like turning your back on the King himself. The frame is just as extraordinary, or possibly more extraordinary even, than the painting itself. There are medallions in the corners, coats of arms on the top. What's going on? Well, the frame is as full of 
political and royalist imagery as the portrait itself. This frame was designed specifically to come with this portrait to London with Comte Admar. And we know that partly because at the bottom there is a rather beautiful cartouche which explains that it was given to the ambassador and the date that it was given and so on and so forth. But also if we look up at the top, it's an immense painting. It must be over two metres high. There's this very, very elaborate cartouche with the arms of France in the middle surrounded by the very splendid collar of the Order of Saint-Esprit. On top of the cartouche is a cushion with the main de justice again, with a crown surmounting everything. Then to either side, below the cushion and the arms of France, is a wonderful assembly of banners, trophies of war, and they're all laid aside in peace. And that's very important because this is a pacifist frame, if you like. Admar's embassy was post the American War of Independence. England and France would be completely at odds through that period. And this frame is about rapprochement, and it expresses it very clearly, much more so than the figure of the king, who's a very standardised image. And how does this portrait end up in Wadston? The portrait came to London with the ambassador, who displayed it in the residence, which was on Piccadilly in London. For reasons that we don't completely understand, when his embassy came to an end, he sold the contents of the official residence, And this portrait was bought by Earl Devon, and it was displayed at Powderham Castle. Then, a few years ago, it was on the art market again. It was deemed to be of national importance because of this very unusual combination of the portrait with its original frame. And so, and ended up having an export stop placed on it, and the Rothschild Foundation stepped in at that point and acquired it for Wadston very largely because of the sitter, because so much that we have here is associated with the Ancien Régime, with Louis XVI, with Marie Antoinette. It seemed a rather wonderful opportunity to secure one of the iconic depictions of the king. And here he is in the white drawing room. I'm in the morning room at Wadston Manor with Rachel Jacobs, the curator responsible for the books. The morning room is a large room with high ceilings, which are extremely ornately decorated in stucco. And on the walls is the original damask, which used to be green and has now faded to a rather pleasant gilt colour. Rachel's going to be introducing some of the books which have associations with Marie Antoinette. The room is lined with five bookcases, so that's where these wonderful treasures live. So this is a black quarto volume with a coat of arms on it, Rachel. This is a manuscript of what appears to be the last will of Franz I, the father of Marie Antoinette. It's instructions for his children, and the whole is manuscript with a lovely black border on each page. The binding is an Austrian binding, elegant but simple. It's black leather with two lines forming a frame around each of the covers, and each corner there's a simple flower with three flower heads. In the middle, quite prominently, are the arms of Marie Antoinette. According to our catalogue, the arms had been updated once she became queen and her arms changed. 
the Habsburgs were control freaks when it came to educating their children. Both Francis Stephen, or François Ier, Franz I, there are several titles by which he's known, Marie Antoinette's father, and of course the formidable Maria Theresa, were actually very interested in the upbringing of their children, and both of them wrote sets of instructions. So Franz, the emperor, wrote this instruction pour mes enfants, tant pour la vie spirituelle que la temporelle, and Maria Theresa, whenever any of her children went off, would make sure they had a list reminding them of their royal duties, a lot of which revolved around remembering her in their prayers. This manuscript is dated the 14th of December, 1752, Vienna. Marie Antoinette was born on the 2nd of November, 1755. The 15th of 16 children this manuscript was actually written before her birth, but the instructions are to any child of the emperor and empress, and that's why a copy would have been made for Marie Antoinette. The manuscript is not in the emperor's own handwriting, but in his scribes. It's a beautifully elegant, rounded cursive, very clear, very legible, with quite a lovely gapping between each line. Fortunately, Marie-Antoinette didn't copy this out herself before leaving Vienna. She was notorious for having appalling handwriting as a child, and a lot of her mother's early letters to her when she's arrived in Versailles say things like, oh, couldn't you be more careful with your letters? Couldn't you write better? Almost all of the books in our collection, including this one, were collected by Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild, who built Wadsden. We often don't have much information about how he acquired his collection. He was quite secretive. Although with his books, he was slightly more forthcoming with the provenance of some of the collection. I think partly because often books show their early provenance. Previous owners love to write their names or put their ex libris in. And here, when you open the cover, there's a lovely small card that says, Collection Terschner, in Ferdinand's own writing, a reminder to himself as to where this came from. So all we know of this one is that it was in the Collection Terschner in the 19th century, and then it's recorded in Ferdinand's own catalogue of books, which is the only part of the collection that he catalogued officially, and that was published in 1897. Tushner was a very significant bibliophile in the 19th century. Ferdinand came at book collecting rather late, in the last sort of 10 years of his life, the middle to the late 1880s, which is when he started building this space for his book collection. And he said at one point in his memoirs that at that time there were no longer any good French paintings to collect on the market, but there were a great number of good French books. And that's because there were some significant bibliophiles who died around that period. We're looking at a beautifully bound almanac royal, almost entirely covered with mica, which is a silicate mineral popular in the second half of the 18th century on bindings, particularly prayer books or almanacs, books that were produced annually and at speed. 
This mineral can be cut into fine sheets and is transparent. It's actually quite good at protecting against damage from light. You often found it in the middle of a binding where there was a painted coat of arms and it was covering that, and the rest of the binding would be predominantly decorated with leather tooled in gold. Here we find painted arms, coat of arms of Marie-Antoinette. Then the rest of the binding is almost entirely covered in mica, and underneath this type of early plastic is a foil, silver foil and red foil, that's been tooled and decorated with wonderful leaves and foliage. What's holding the mica down is a lovely strap work of leather, also tooled in gold decoration, and those form a border and corner pieces as well. In the 18th century, when you went and bought a book, it would not be bound. There would be leaves of paper which had been sewn together into what the French would call cahiers, or choirs. You would then, if you wanted to keep the book and protect it, have a binding made for it. This means that bindings range in quality. You could have a very simple broad binding, or you could have a very elaborate binding. The more elaborate the binding, of course, the more expensive and the finer the materials used. Can we presume that this binding was made specifically for Marie-Antoinette? Yes, we can. In her account books, we know that her household was purchasing large numbers of almanacs, which would have been used by members of her household. These books were extremely useful. They were your sort of equivalent of the yellow pages, but also provided every bit of information you needed to live <laughs> within that regime. You had all of the members of each royal household each of the ministers, the members of the military, you had information about when the post and certain travel information, where you would bring petitions for each household, all of this information, as well as a calendar with the saints' days. The calendar with the saints' days is particularly important because at the time, you don't generally wish someone a happy birthday. That's not the most important day in their year. It's the saint's day of the saint to whom they owe their name, the day on which all their friends will be writing to them, sending them presents or bringing them bouquets of flowers. Binders at this time were very, very clever in trying to maximize effect but also minimize cost. What's interesting about this binding is despite the fact that it looks quite spectacular, because of the silver foil, it catches the light and it would sort of glisten as you were holding it and flicking through it. At the same time, mica and the limited amount of leather used is quite a cost-effective way of making something that looks quite luxurious, and this is evident here. The text block, which is the pages, the edges are gilt, which is lovely, so that adds to the overall shimmer effect. It's also quite a good method of protecting the pages from mold and so on. The paste down, when you opened the binding, the back of the board and the first piece of paper, there's stuck down a beautiful blue watered silk, extremely expensive as textiles were at that time. On the title page, it says Almana Royal, année 1778. 
1778, présenté à Sa Majesté pour la première fois en 1699. So this is something which comes out every year, absolutely vital to have in any household, let alone the royal household. There's a long tradition of almanacs and originally within their agricultural setting would hope to tell you what the year ahead would hold and give you advice as to when to set about your crops and so on and also give you advice in terms of medical needs. What time of year would be best for such and such treatments? By this point they had moved on from that but they came from this tradition. So on page 168, we have La Maison de la Reine, all of the members of her household, and it covers a good three pages. Among the people who would be listed in the Maison de la Reine, there is, of course, the surintendante, who ruled over everything, at least in theory. There would also be, for instance, members of her chapel staff, the chaplain to the Queen, her doctor, her equerries, the people who looked after her wardrobe. If you look through lists like these, you come across a number of people who were important in Marie-Antoinette's life. So since 1775, the Princesse de Lamballe has been surintendante de la Reine. If we look a little bit further along, one of the Chevaliers d'honneur is Monsieur le Comte de Polignac en survivance, the husband, the woman whom we know as the Duchesse de Polignac. Amongst the other people is her lecteur, the Abbé de Vermont, a really important character in Marie-Antoinette's life since he was sent to Vienna before her arrival in France to help tutor her in French history and the French language. But also Moreau, the historiographe de France who also held the position as bibliothécaire or librarian to the Queen. These are albums, essentially modern scrapbooks. The beginning of these albums tend to be more the official royal image making. And then as we go through the album, we'll get some of the revolutionary images and counter-revolutionary images as well. The volume opens with a portrait of Louis XVI and then right afterwards, we have Marie-Antoinette, described as Marie-Antoinette d'Autriche, Reine de France et de Navarre, en habit de cour et le manteau royal. So this is very obviously a state portrait representation of Marie-Antoinette. Marie-Antoinette is dressed in court style. The sort of cape which hangs down from her shoulders is blue, trimmed with ermine and covered in gold fleur-de-lis, the symbol of French royalty, which was used in the decorative arts and in fashion extensively. But there's also, I think, in this picture, a lot to denote the fact that she was interested in fashion and trying to make even the traditional court garments into something quite original. And what gives it away more than anything else is the extraordinary confection she has on her head. Four large white ostrich feathers with a black one downturned, which seem to be sitting on top of a very high wig, which has ringlets to the side going down her neck, but pulled back into this great confection with a sort of cap and jewels and silks on the top of this very tall head of hair.
Marie-Antoinette was famous in her time not only for having reformed dresses, but also initially for what she did to women's heads. Marie-Antoinette created fashions which were followed not only throughout court circles, but widely beyond, including in foreign countries. One of the fashions she launched with great success was what was known as the Poof, essentially back-combed hair and a wig, surmounting it with a cap, feathers, jewels, and all sorts of extravagant things which were meant to tell you what was happening. Was there a naval victory? Then you would have a miniature ship with all its rigging on the top of your hair. There were all sorts of extraordinary creations which made getting in and out of carriages particularly trying, but they were the talk of the town. The birth of a longed-for daughter, Marie-Thérèse Charlotte, not as good as a son, of course, changed Marie-Antoinette's place in French court circles. At last, she had shown that she could produce an heir. Marie-Antoinette was interested in her own children. She played with them. She'd played with other children, even when an adult. This was quite unusual, and it was deplored by people like the Austrian ambassador, who said that it was never really possible for him to see her without her daughter being around and messing up papers and so on. We have a very charming print here, which purports to be of Marie-Antoinette d'Autriche, femme de Louis XVI, roi des Français, et Madame Royale, fille du roi. None of it looks particularly like either Marie-Antoinette or her daughter, but what it does show is the importance of portraying the queen and the royal princess. It looks quite a lot like the many series of fashion prints that were produced at the time in terms of its small scale, its framing. So without that inscription below, it could just be any lovely fashionable lady with her child. And she's holding a wonderful fan as well. At a time when many people couldn't read, caricatures were extraordinarily good ways of getting across a message, particularly when it was a politically subversive message. The French Revolution saw the development of a series of caricatures which would often turn members of the royal family, particularly the queen, who had a very bad press at the time, into animals. It was a way not only of showing that a king or queen was a human being like another, but actually they were no better than beasts. One of the caricatures, which was much reproduced during the Revolution, showed Marie-Antoinette as an ostrich. Why an ostrich, you might ask? Well, it is a punning depiction, because an ostrich in French is an autruche, and Austria, the country of Marie-Antoinette's birth, is Autriche. So Marie-Antoinette became la poule d'Autruche or la poule d'Autriche. On the one hand, the ostrich, but on the other, the kept woman of Austria. And the kept woman of Austria or the ostrich is supposed to be saying in the caption to this print, je digère l'or, l'argent avec facilité, mais la constitution, je ne puis l'avaler. I can digest gold and silver with ease, but I cannot swallow the constitution. 
This was the constitution which was intended to reform the French monarchy and which indeed was something both the king and queen found very difficult to swallow. What this print is also saying is that Marie Antoinette is someone who had got her hands on, or in this case her greedy beak, on the gold and the silver of France and that she had been responsible for bankrupting France. We of course know that this is a myth, but it's a myth which gained great currency during the revolution and prints like this would have been used to propagate it. The French Revolution sent shockwaves throughout Europe. One of the places where the French Revolution was watched in some circles with interest and enthusiasm and in others with great wariness was, of course, the United Kingdom. On the one hand, the idea that Republican ideals might flourish was an extremely attractive one to a number of intellectuals. On the other, the traditional forces of the church and the aristocracy were extremely worried about the consequences. A number of British cartoonists made their fortune, or at least part of their fortune, on prints and caricatures which related to the French Revolution. So we're looking here at a print called La Boîte à Pandore, Pandora's Box. There are a group of people, one of whom in the centre is carrying a box, out of which is popping a sort of jack-in-the-box, except the jack is Marie-Antoinette, and it says on the box, of all ills, I am quite the worst. In a medallion, we can see the king, the queen, and the little dauphin. But what sets this print apart from some of the other earlier ones showing the royal family is that clearly it's a very late one. There is a panel underneath which shows the moment when the family was separated. We're in the Temple prison. They are captives, they cannot leave. The Tuileries was a palace in which the royal family was held under house arrest, but once they got to the Temple, there was no going out. You can see the absolute despair of some of the members of the family. We can see the queen with her daughter and her sister-in-law, and then the little Dauphin hanging onto his father's coattails as his father is being marched away. During the last part of his life, Louis XVI was indeed kept apart from the rest of the family. So we'll go upstairs. We've just stopped in what's called the West Hall to look at a beautiful painting by Vigée Lebrun of the famous Duchesse de Polignac, which was collected by Baron Ferdinand de Rothschild and has been at Wadsden since his time. The Duchesse de Polignac, who was one of Marie Antoinette's closest friends, is wearing one of the famous white muslin dresses which Marie Antoinette made fashionable after she'd had her children. It's gathered loosely at the waist with a pink silk sash. She has a broad blue hat on with a feather. So to us, she looks very elegant, and yet for the 18th century onlooker, this is very much a relaxed style. It's natural elegance, it's grace, it's the sort of thing Marie Antoinette was promoting. Vigée Lebrun was the most famous woman painter of her time. She was made a member of the prestigious Académie Royale de Peinture et de Sculpture at the king's specific request. She enjoyed royal patronage, and this on the one hand meant that she had a list of clients longer than anyone else at the time, and on the other that there were a lot of painters who were very jealous of her. Marie-Antoinette was painted a number of times by Vigée Lebrun on her own, 
in simple white muslin with flowers, but also in court dress and indeed in a very famous portrait of her with her children, looking very regal in a red dress which echoes the Raphael Madonnas and which shows in the background one of the important pieces of furniture she had commissioned, the serre bijou, that is to say her jewellery chest. It's in the background, why? Because in the foreground are the royal children. This echoes a famous classical exemplum, that of the mother of the Gracchi, who showed her children saying, my children are my jewels. In the portrait, the Duchesse de Polignac is holding a piece of sheet music. She looks as though she's just picked it up to start singing, possibly, or to suggest a duet. And you can understand, looking at a painting like this, why Vigée Lebrun was so popular amongst Marie-Antoinette and her contemporaries. There's a very natural air to the portrait. Marie-Antoinette was trained as a musician. She was in particular very good at playing the harp. She enjoyed singing. She put on a lot of amateur operas with her friends, including the Duchesse de Polignac and her family. Marie-Antoinette was also a patron of the arts. She can be credited to a large extent with making German music fashionable in France. Gluck was her protégé. He'd been a protégé of her brother, Emperor Joseph II, at the court in Vienna. She enjoyed opera particularly as a genre. Marie-Antoinette, as a child, had met Mozart when he came to perform for her mother, Maria Theresa. She was very much someone who practiced music and enjoyed it, and who saw music as a social occupation which could bring people together, whether this was in the form of intimate gatherings where people would sing duets from a recent opera, for instance, or going to public performances which she attended regularly throughout her life. Joseph II, Holy Roman Emperor, was the elder brother of Marie-Antoinette. Joseph not only was the big brother she'd looked up to when she was a child in Vienna, he was someone who came to visit her whilst in France. Marie-Antoinette felt the absence of her family very cruelly. She left Vienna when she was a teenager to go and marry the Dauphin of France, whom she'd never met. When Joseph was sent to see her by their mother, Maria Theresa, he came semi-incognito, as was often the rule during princely visits, using a pseudonym. He was the Comte de Falkenstein. And as Comte de Falkenstein, he could attend on his sister at leisure without the whole formal protocol that would have been for a state visit of a monarch from a foreign country. Joseph got on well with Marie-Antoinette and acted as an advisor to her in many ways, on his first visit to see her in Versailles, he was entrusted by their mother with the mission of finding out why an heir to the French throne had not yet been produced. Marie-Antoinette and the Dauphin, who since then had become king, Louis says, had been married for a number of years and not produced an heir. During her lifetime, Maria Theresa sent countless letters to Marie-Antoinette urging her to get on with the business of producing an heir because not having an heir meant that Marie-Antoinette's position was not secure. Marie-Antoinette and Louis XVI had four children, a daughter first, who, like all first granddaughters of Maria Theresa, was called Marie-Thérèse, Marie-Thérèse Charlotte, who was known formally as Madame Royale, but who to her mother was Mousseline or Muslin. She's the only member of Marie-Antoinette and Louis XVI's immediate family to have survived the revolution. 
Two boys followed, the premier dauphin, who died in 1789, probably of a form of tuberculosis. He was a very sickly child from the start. The child who then was to become the dauphin and who had been known as the Duc de Normandie, detained with his parents in the Temple prison in Paris, along with his sister, Marie-Thérèse Charlotte. He died in mysterious circumstances during the revolution. He was mistreated by his jailer. He was called upon to make false accusations against his mother during her trial. He has remained a mythical figure in French history under the name of l'enfant du Temple, the child of the Temple prison. The fourth child of Marie-Antoinette and Louis XVI, Sophie-Hélène Béatrix, a little girl, died before her first birthday and was a very sickly infant from the start. So here we have one of our printed board games. It's quite a large sheet of paper, almost a meter long, made to be played by a group of people sitting around it. It's based on the game of the goose, a luck sort of game, similar to Snakes and Ladders now, where you have a serpentine track around the board with numbers 1 to 63, the players roll dice and either win tokens or money in some instances and also have a series of forfeits. The aim of the game is to land on the last square, number 63, but you have to land exactly on that square. If you roll too many, you have to then move backwards. Games like this were extremely popular in the 18th century as educational tools because each square could hold quite a lot of information. A big print like this could teach you all about geography, about history, about language, all sorts of things. So here we have Le Nouveau Jeu des Modes Françoises, the new game of French fashions. The middle of the board gives you the rules, but also a short introduction. And it's quite fun, this one, because it says, here we've tried to show you the French fashions in the last three years, but there are so many that it would have taken up many, many more squares than just 63. So we've tried to make a selection. There's a bit of tongue-in-cheek here in making fun of how quickly fashions, especially in France, were changing at the time. Each square is a combination of either the bust of a woman down to her waist or a full-length view of the woman with wonderful, fanciful hairstyles. They're all named. So number one is bonnet rond, round bonnet. Number three is la frivolité, frivolity. The final square, la dame en grande robe ajustée, is referring to a print of Marie-Antoinette that exists in other formats. Here she's beautifully dressed, also holding a fan in a landscape with a balcony looking onto the trees in the background. 
on the surface, it looks like a simple array of the wonderful French fashions of the day. But I think that there was possibly also a masculine audience intended for this game because number 59 is a lovely woman with ostrich feathers in her hair, but she's showing her leg. She's lifted up her dress over her knee and her foot is resting on a stone. When you read the rules, it says... When you get to number 59 and you get to contempler la belle jambe du nymphe, having the pleasure of seeing this beautiful leg, you have to pay four tokens for the pleasure of doing so. So it's a forfeit, but it's possibly an enjoyable forfeit. Lots of the squares show headdresses or coiffures. Some of them have references to individuals, to cultural events and so on. One of the ones we can see shows la coiffure à la Rocourt in number 43. Mademoiselle Rocourt was a famous thespian of the time, so she was obviously setting trends. Number 10 is le pouf à la puce. A pouf is a very elaborate headdress where your hair, and quite often artificial hair on top of it, is backcombed. You have a sort of cap on top, and then there's something special on the cap. In this case, the something special is a puce, an insect, something like a tick. So why is a puce important? Well, puce is what gave us the name for the color puce. The whole of the garment trade in Paris in the late 18th century witnessed the development of a whole series of new colors. There were colors which referred to the cheveux de la reine, so the queen's hair, There were other colors which purported to be representations of feelings, soupir sighs or soupirs étouffés, stifled sighs. There were also other colors, one of which was caca dauphin, the crown prince's poo, and puce. So how did puce get its name? One day, Marie-Antoinette is said to have come along with a new dress and her husband to have said to her, well, madame, What color is that? It looks like the color of a puce, and it's stuck. At the time, they distinguished vieille puce, old tick. They had ventre de puce, the puce's belly, or dos de puce, the puce's back. We have stuck with puce. So next time you say somebody went puce, think about the fact that Marie-Antoinette was there when the color was first christened. Everything on this game is in French. The fashions are French, the scenes are French, but if you look at the bottom, it says London, printed for Robert Sayer, number 53, Fleet Street, and John Smith, number 35, Cheapside. French fashions were loved by people throughout Europe. French was also spoken by a lot of people throughout Europe. And in that respect, it's not surprising to find printers in London who can print texts or games in French. This is true, but in the case of this game, this is actually a ruse by the French publisher Crépy, who was actually in quite a bit of trouble over this particular game because the publisher of a series of fashion prints took him to court because headdresses and the squares were taken after prints that this other publisher had published. We know from the records that Crépy's workshop was raided and they found some few hundred copies of this game and the plates, which were then ordered to be destroyed. And his defense was that they had actually been published in England and he'd imported them and was selling them as such. 
questions of literary copyright and questions of censorship are very important to understand how prints and books circulate in Ancien Régime France. If you want to have a book published, you're supposed to submit your manuscript to the censor, who will then decide whether there are passages to be struck out or whether it can be allowed at all. One of the ways of getting round the censor is to pretend that you have published something overseas. There are lots of French books which have totally spurious addresses, as they're called, which will indicate, for instance, that a book has been published in Constantinople in the Seraglio, or that they were ordered by the great Mufti. There are libertine novels which are supposed to have been printed in Agra, for instance, where there was no publishing press at the time. There's a lot of invention, and there's also something of a game going on. There is some tolerance when things are not considered to be dangerous of such false addresses for books. Dr. Mia Jackson, Curator of Decorative Arts here. I believe we're in Ferdinando Rothschild's old bathroom. We are indeed, and there are still remnants of tiles behind these cases. The cases don't hold very much which relates to bathrooms. This is part of our collection of Sèvres porcelain at Wadston. This room displays a number of services, whether for dessert or dinner. And the one that we're here to talk about today is the one ordered by Marie-Antoinette in 1781 from the Sèvres porcelain manufactory. Sèvres is a royal manufactory from its inception. It has strong links with the royal family throughout the Ancien Régime. And one of the things which happens is that Marie-Antoinette orders not only objects for her own consumption, but gifts from Sèvres. Much of Sèvres porcelain is famous for its turquoise blue, the bleu de Sèvres, rather like the colour you're wearing today, Mia. Marie-Antoinette didn't go in for that sort of Sèvres, did she? Well, it's more to do with how the Sèvres manufactory developed over the 18th century. What Marie-Antoinette is ordering is the sort of thing that Sèvres were producing at that time. So with the white of the porcelain in the centre against a white ground rather than having ground colours. Throughout the 1760s there was more of an emphasis on ground colours but by the 1780s Sèvres porcelain had become more likely to be on a paler background. If we take one of the plates as an example, in the centre we have a bouquet of flowers with pink as a dominant colour, then a garland around the flowers, a large amount of white and a border, which is actually quite a complicated border, which uses the same flowers as in the central nosegay, swags, rims which are painted, medallions containing flowers. So it's quite a complicated decorative programme. And the commission of this service actually used a third of the painting atelier, and they were all flower painters. 
We have 106 pieces of the service, which is only part of the original delivery for the Queen. It also contains some objects which we wouldn't expect nowadays. There's a soup tureen, for instance, with extraordinary feet and handles. There are some very beautiful large serving dishes, round ones and oval ones, often with gadroon borders. But there are also things which look like gigantic egg cups. (laughs) Those are wine coolers. The larger ones would be used for cooling bottles of wine. You would surround the wine with ice. And the smaller ones would be used for either smaller bottles or for cooling glasses. In terms of other unusual pieces, pretty exceptional are the large serving plates called plates for roasts. They're exceptionally big. And what makes this service interesting is that it's produced in a mixture of soft and hard paste porcelain. So for the most part, the Sev manufactory was producing in soft paste porcelain until the discovery of kaolin near Limoges in 1768. This service, most of the smaller plates are made in soft paste porcelain, even though it's from the 1780s. But the large plates, because soft paste porcelain is much more likely to fail in the kiln, are made of hard paste. So it's incredibly skillful of the Sev manufacturer to be able to replicate the same type of decoration on both soft and hard paste. On the different pieces, there are several types of flowers, pansies and roses and so on. Would the rose painter paint all the roses on all the pieces? Or would one person paint all the flowers on a single piece? I think one person would be more likely to paint all of the flowers on a single piece, although maybe in some cases somebody might paint the bouquet and somebody else might paint the individual flowers. What it does mean, though, is that there was a sort of template for representing the flowers because we can't set the plates apart. Yes and no. So particularly well-trained serv specialists can distinguish between different flower painters. Is there any trace, for instance, on the plates themselves of who painted them? Does it indicate when they were ordered and by whom on the items themselves? Yes, each plate has a painter's mark. It tends not to be manuscript, but some sort of symbol. And most of those painter's marks have been identified by matching up extant pieces of Sev porcelain with the kiln records and the painter's records that are still at the manufactory. It doesn't say on them who the client was. Again, that comes from the kiln and sales ledgers. So this is a luxury service which any wealthy person could have bought. At the same time, Catherine the Great, who loves everything French, is ordering a service for herself in Russia and she puts her monogram on. I suspect that these services for Marie Antoinette were more for private use. They don't shout their patron in the way that the Catherine the Great service does. We know that Marie Antoinette got very bored during court receptions. She very much disliked the public taking of meals, which was expected of the French royal couple. And there are reports of her toying with her food. 
She didn't like wine. She liked water, but not water from absolutely anywhere. So she had it brought to her specially. One of the things she really missed about Vienna was Viennese bread, which may surprise us, considering that we always think of French bread as being much nicer than most other kinds of bread, including Austrian bread. But she obviously spent a lot of time choosing her services for her own receptions. Does this tend to indicate that she was somebody who wanted to show that she had a beautiful set of everything? You have to bear in mind that it had become de rigueur for the royal family to purchase Sèvres porcelain. Every New Year's Day, there was a sale at Versailles of Sèvres porcelain where the factory would bring its latest wares and arrange them around the room for all of the courtiers to come and purchase. And so purchasing them almost became an act of loyalty to the monarchy. So you would expect her to have Sèvres porcelain. In many ways, this is similar to some of the furniture Marie Antoinette is ordering. We've got the swags, we've got the flowers, we've got this extraordinary mixture of simplicity and great artifice. And we see that in a lot of the furniture, I think. Noble materials, strong colours, and a desire to have the best of everything. And it's also the development of the neoclassical style according to Marie Antoinette's own taste. So this very refined and delicate mixture of floral motifs and architectural motifs. French meals at the time weren't quite like meals we have nowadays. And one of the aspects which survives in the expression service à la française was that the meat and the vegetables weren't served together. You would often have different cuts of meat and you would then have vegetables. And the meal would be started by a kind of meaty broth that was served in these large tureens. And then you would follow it with roasts then vegetables and salads and then dessert. And this service has elements for all of those courses. So, for example, the service that you see behind me, which was made for Count Razumovsky, that's just a dessert service, whereas this service was a full service. And do we know if Marie Antoinette would, for instance, have used this service or one like it at Trianon? We don't know exactly where this service was used, but it's relatively portable, so we can assume that it could have been used at the Trianon. It seems particularly appropriate for the Trianon. Well, certainly the decorative programme ties in so well with what we know of how the Trianon was decorated in Marie Antoinette's time. And despite the number of pieces, there are a lot of pieces, there are some elements which we don't have, which we know from the records were delivered. For example, there were only 12 egg cups delivered. So is it a service for only 12 diners? And if it is, then obviously it's going to be a lavish meal, but relatively intimate, not these grand suppers that took place in the Grand Appartement. And certainly the choice of an iconographic programme with the flowers and the swags, the relative simplicity, would indeed plead in favour of this being a service chosen for more intimate meals and therefore potentially for a more intimate setting, for instance, Trianon. Yes, and it speaks of the bucolic rather than the grand formality. Thank you.
You've been listening to In the Footsteps of Marie-Antoinette with me, Katrina Seth, Marshall Foch Professor of French Literature at the University of Oxford. I hope you'll join us next time when we visit the Conciergerie in Paris, where Marie-Antoinette spent her final days before being executed on the 16th of October 1793 at the age of 37. You may also like to catch up with our first podcast from the Wallace Collection. <laughs>